I think it's easy for us to look at the ministry of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and see he knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls. And he hears me when I call. I preached yesterday or Friday night on the Good Samaritan. On that poor fellow who was beat up and beside the road. Jesus had this story that explained what love of neighbor means. And when I said at the end of the story that the Good Samaritan who passed by that way was a picture of Christ and the story is an autobiography. It dawned on some people and ministers of music came up to me afterwards and said, it's the first time I ever thought about that being an autobiography of Jesus. That he's the one who stops and helps. That's right. That's Jesus. He knows your name. And every thought. He sees each tear that falls and he hears you when you call. And you are proof of that this morning, many of you, and that God found you beat up by the side of the road and in great need of his love. And Christ rescued you through no virtue of your own. Amen? It was pure grace. We didn't deserve it. We, we cried out to him, but, but we didn't deserve it. And yet he intervened on our behalf. Now, we've been sitting down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. And we've been learning from the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. And I want you to know today that there is a consistent revelation of God from Genesis to the book of Revelation. There is a consistent picture of God that emerges in the teaching of the Scripture. And the Good Samaritan and the ministry of Jesus as he cared for the sick and those who were outcasts, that that is consistent with the God who is revealed to us in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And today we're sitting down with Jacob. We've been with Abraham and Isaac since January. And now we're with Jacob and it is Genesis chapter 29. And I'm going to pick up where we left off last week. Talking about the God of the Old Covenant, the God of the Old Bible, the God of the book of Genesis, and a woman named Leah who knew how to pray, but who was living in such trouble and brokenness of heart. And in verse 31 of chapter 29 of Genesis... The words of this woman are summarized and recorded in the text of Scripture. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again 
And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, He gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time, I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? A story of a family, a home. A journey. Our misery is seen, you know. Just like Leah said, you do not shed tears by yourself, my sister. The Lord sees every one of them. Our misery is seen. To see misery in the life of Leah is for God not just to be informed about her circumstances or to look from heaven disconnected from her emotions. For the Lord to see Leah's misery is for the God of heaven to look into her heart, into her soul, where misery happens. God sees the inner you. The real you. The things you never show anybody else that go on in your thought life and in your heart. He sees it. He knows you completely. Even the things that you have been unwilling to formulate into words in prayer because you do not want to speak them out loud. He sees those too. 
The scripture says nothing is hidden from him about you. It is all laid bare before the one who made you, who created you, who sent his son to die for you, and who loves you completely. He sees it all. He saw Hagar when Abraham threw her out. He saw Hagar, the Egyptian slave, when in desperation, when she was pregnant, she ran away. She ran from the house into the desert. And it was there in the desert as a pregnant woman in distress and misery that it dawned on Hagar, God sees me. In fact, the place where this revelation occurred She named it. God sees me. I want you to imagine for a moment, all right? Crank up that imagination of yours. And imagine that in heaven there is a great telescope that magnifies things incredibly. And that right now, its crosshairs are trained on you. And the Creator God is looking right at you. Whatever that picture communicates of God's attention and knowledge of your life, it is truth. It is truth to you. You receive it. You open your mind and heart to the truth that God's thought and I is trained on you. And if you are already one of his own, and you have trusted Christ to save you, the scripture says this, he has carved your name on the palms of his hands. He has written your name on his eyelids. You are ever present in the thoughts, attention, and care of the Father who sees you. You say, I just can't imagine that. No, you can't. Your brain can't get around it. But it's what the Scripture says. You think God's like you. You forget him. God laments at one place in the Old Covenant and says, Can a maid forget her jewelry or a bride her attire? 
Would she forget the wedding dress? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. They forget about me. They don't think about me. They go on with life as if I wasn't there. But I never forget about them. They are continually on my mind and in my heart. Brothers and sisters, this revelation of the nature of God is 4,000 years old. When Leah said, God sees my misery, she knew something of the heart of God all the way back then. And it is confirmed over and over again that people in pain, in trouble, in sorrow, experience the presence and attention of God that stirs their heart like Leah was stirred. Now Leah has this sense that though her husband does not love her, God's grace is poured out to her and that lack in her life is in some ways compensated for by this son she holds in her arms. Now, everyone, everybody in the room lacks something. If I were to ask you to complete the sentence, I need blank. Everybody could put at least one word in the blank, right? Everybody could. But the amazing grace of God is that very often what we lack in one part of our life, what brings in grief is sorrow, God brings something else into our life that is beautiful and new. And Leah is embracing that as she holds this baby in her arms. God sees my sorrow. And so, he's given me this son. Our misery is seen. Our prayers are heard. God's heard me. That's the second son. She bears this second son. She says, God's heard me. The first son, he's seen me. And the second son, he's heard me. Hey, Leah is a woman of prayer 4,000 years ago who talks to God and she believes God has heard her and he certainly has. He knows our thoughts. He knows our prayers. He hears them. He treasures our prayers. At one point, the scripture says he captures our prayers like tears in a bottle. And he gathers the prayers together. And the prayers of the saints are stored under the altar of God in heaven. Isn't that some picture? And so the prayers you utter unto God, 
the longings of your heart that you formulate in words and bring to Him. Those things even that you cannot say, but you feel and you know and the thoughts that are there as you turn your heart toward God. He knows all that. He gathers it together. It is precious to Him, these words you speak. Sometimes you look at the place of prayer and think, I'm too busy to go there. Sometimes you long to be in your place of prayer. You can't hardly wait to get there. Because you know you need to pray. And you love that spot where you pray. And if you pray when you walk, you run out the door ready to meet God in your journey that morning. But I want you to know, no matter who the best prayer warrior in the room is, the one who prays with the most fervor and passion, the one who is delighted to meet God every day, God looks forward to that moment more than you. God eagerly anticipates the moment when you set aside the dishes and the kids and all the housework and you turn aside to talk to Him. He's waiting for that. He loves that time in your life because He loves you. And he loves it when your eyes turn toward him and your hearts turn toward him and you start saying the words that are in your soul to say to him. He loves that moment. He longs for it. He enjoys it. It is special to him even more than it is to you. For God, when you pray, it is like the, the words your grandson utters to you when you see him three or four times a year. And you want to hear every nuance of every word. You want to hear what's on his heart. That's how God feels about you. That's how he feels about your prayers. That's why he wants you to pray and commands you to pray and loves for you to pray and come into his presence. Oh, God especially hears now. Brother, when you bring your prayer to Him, and it is a cry out to Him, He hears that. Do you remember Moses talking to God? God initiates this conversation with Moses from the burning bush. And you know what God says to Moses? I have heard their cries. Do you remember when we talked about Abraham? That God comes and says to Abraham concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, I have heard the cries. God, God hears those cries. God heard the cries of Hagar in the desert. And she named her first son. The Lord hears. I know sometimes, in the middle of our trouble, we say, Where is God? Leah could have said that. Where is God? My husband doesn't love me. He favors his other wife. I am neglected and passed over. Is this what life will be for me? Where is God in the midst of this? But Leah learns in the journey of her life that God is right there. Seeing her need. 
hearing her prayers. Sometimes Leah has the hope that outside circumstances and their developing life together will make Jacob love her. And I want to tell you, though our misery is seen and our prayers are heard, our assumptions are suspect. Is that me? Nope. Oh. What's happening, Robert? Oh, is it my microphone? So I don't need this? All right. I don't know why God let that interruption happen. What do you all think? Maybe he really wanted you to get this one, okay? Leah names her third son, not about a prayer, not about contact with God. She says, surely my husband will become attached to me now. I've borne him three sons. Leah will discover in the next years of her life that three children do not a marriage make. Have you learned that yet? You folks that are my age, approaching 50, you better learn it quick if you hadn't. Three kids do not a marriage make. She assumed, hey, I've had three sons. Surely he's going to be attached to me now. Hey, numbers five and six, she's going to name those two. If you read on ahead, you'll see. Nope. Three kids do not a marriage make. Some marriages are wonderful with no children. And sometimes you are like the husband who came to me when I was 22 years old and a pastor. And he said, what shall I do? My marriage is in trouble. And he had five children. My first experience in marriage counseling was with a couple who had been married 30 years and had five kids who eventually divorced. Our assumptions are suspect when we think that children will glue the marriage together. You know, one of the times when you have divorces is as the empty nest approaches and you realize indeed that three kids do not a marriage make. And there's got to be more to the marriage than the children. I mean, children are a beautiful gift. But Leah's learning this lesson. And many of us have learned it the hard way. That we must cultivate our marriages as the primary relationship in the family. And that this must be a focus of our attention, our work, and our energy. And together we build a life in mutual love and honor and respect. 
And no matter what about the children and grandkids, a marriage is strong and healthy on its own as the primary relationship in the home. And not only in the home, but in the whole community. Sometimes we approach marriage in fear. And we are afraid because we've seen so many marriages fail. There are young people in this room that are afraid to say, I do. Because so many people who said, I do, just didn't. They didn't keep their promise. The covenant was broken up. And so we come to thinking about marriage with fear in our hearts. Let me say this. Marriage and parenting needs to be a place of peace and faith and love, not a place of fear. And you need to cultivate peace in your home. It needs to be there. I was talking to the ministers of music this week. And I said to a group of ministers, I said, when you come to church, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be on edge. Why? Because your anxiety is communicated to your leadership and your people. And all of a sudden, everybody's on edge and anxious. Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you this peace. Do not be anxious, don't be afraid. This is vintage Jesus. Do not be anxious. Husbands and wives, we need to cultivate that in our marriages. We need to let fear go and replace it with peace. And seek to be at peace when we are together. Not anxious and on edge. Not taking all of the troubles of the day and heaping them on our spouse. Not letting all those anxieties pile up until we get home. We need to be at peace. We need to replace our fear with love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He who fears, John says, is not made perfect in love. There are folks who have brought children into the world and all you do is worry about them. You're always anxious about the kids. Some of you are young mothers and you're wondering if you have what it takes to raise a child. Some of you are dads, and you're looking forward to the time when your kids are getting older, but you're scared to death you're not going to have enough money for their health care or their education. And you wonder what the world will be like 10 or 15 years from now when they're maturing, and it's really twisting you up inside the condition of the world. And sometimes you think to yourself, how can a sane person bring another human being into a world like this? Need to get rid of that fear, Dad. Husband, you need to get rid of that fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You don't, you can't live in that fear. That's not healthy. That anxiety is going to tear you up inside and tear up your relationships. You need to replace that fear with peace. Ask God to give it. Lord, give me peace. Some of you, if you were to fill in the blank, you'd say, I need peace. I'd like to sleep at night. I'd like my mind to stop racing. I'd like to have a moment's rest. God can give you that. 
That's a spiritual quality which you seek. The Holy Spirit produces in the heart of the believer peace. That's what the Scripture says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Man, these fundamentals, we need to have them in our homes, in our hearts, as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers. These things need to reign in us. We need to trust God. Why are you so worried about stuff? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. That's Jesus. Leah says, oh, maybe my husband will love me now, but three kids does not a marriage make. She's in a pilgrimage in her life and she comes to this fourth son. And she bears this fourth son and she says, this time, what? I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise the Lord. First son named in misery. Second son named in the same condition. Third son with the false hope. Then maybe he will make his, this husband be attached. And the fourth time she just says, this time I will praise the Lord. I think Leah is on a journey of worship. She's growing in her understanding of God and how she relates to him and the world in which she lives, and how circumstances impact her, and how she is to respond. She's learning how to handle life. She's still a woman who lives in the condition she was when her first son was born. She's still crying out to God for the needs of her heart. But this time, I will praise the Lord. You say, what's this woman got to praise God about? These beautiful children, these sons, they are a gift from God. Amen? She, Leah says that. God's given me this children. She understands children come from God. Rachel doesn't quite understand that. Rachel hollers at Jacob and says, Give me children or I'll die. And Jacob responds by saying, Am I God? I can't give you children. God's the one that hasn't given you children. And Jacob puts it off on God. I don't know why Rachel couldn't have children. Doctors of our day might look at it, give a medical explanation. I don't know. I know this. It's a mystery. How God and humans work together to populate the world. It's a mystery to me. I don't have the answer. Except I know this. God is the creator and every single human is a special creation from his hand. And Psalm 139 is absolutely true. I was created in my mother's womb. You knit me together there. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You were present when the first thought of me came to pass. And every child is a gift of God. And so Leah praised the Lord when this fourth son came into the world as God's gift. 
Now, Mark and Simbri are adopting a little boy from Ethiopia. And I think that's one way to praise the Lord. That every single life is of infinite value and worth to Him. Don't you? That's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful affirmation of the value of every child on the planet. And we have a spirit of adoption that is going on in the church of Jesus Christ in these days. I don't know if you've seen it or heard it, but I think it comes from God. Why would I think that? Because God adopted me, for heaven's sake. You think I'm a biological child of God spiritually, that I am just naturally His? The Scripture says you are by nature a child of the wrath of God. That's your nature. Your nature is to sin. Your nature is to go your own way. Your nature is to be proud and think you can do it on your own. Your nature is pride. That's what your nature is. Your nature is say, God, I don't need you. I'm going to do it my way instead of your way. And people, every single one of them, that's how we do it. And God's noticed that, you know. Every single one of them have gone astray. They have all, all, all turned to their own way. There's not a single one of them that's righteous. No, not one. Why? We're not by nature. By spiritual nature, we're not His children. And so the Bible teaches that this spirit of adoption is in the heart of God. And though we are by nature sinners, He brings us into His family by adoption. And the truth of adoption is this. Though you are by nature a sinner, though you have gone your own way, though you have spurned the will of God and the way of God and lived in pride and arrogance and selfishness, all these things are true about you, yet God loves you fully and freely. And completely send his one and only son to die on the cross for you. And as he brings you by adoption into his family, he grants you all the rights that belong to the heir of salvation through faith in Christ. The idea of adoption. As Morgan Bryan so powerfully taught me, Bob, the idea of adoption is not so much a little baby coming into a family as a person coming into a family with all the rights and privileges of being the heir. That's what God's done for you. That's the amazing thing in the prodigal son. Jesus tells the story about the boy who squandered all his living, who, who wasted his father's inheritance, who spent it all out there in the world and ended up poverty-stricken. And when he comes back, the elder brother wants him on probation. Maybe we can let him halfway into the family. Yeah, just give him a job, Dad. <laughs> you know, let him work in the stables for a while. That's what the elder brother... Yeah, he never left. No, no. This is the spirit of adoption in the heart of God. No matter where you've wandered or where you've been, no matter what kind of life you've lived or how far you've been from the Father's presence, if you turn today and you come to your senses and say in your place of misery and trouble and regret, 
My father's servants eat better than this. I'm going to go to the Father. If you come to your senses, the moment you turn your face toward God, the Father knows and starts running toward you. He doesn't meet you halfway. He comes all the way to the repentant sinner who is turned. And He brings you in as a full child. Give him the robe. Give him the ring. Kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate today this son who was lost. He is found. You know what a celebration there'd be in heaven for you, prodigal, who left long ago? If you were to turn to the father and come back home, you know the angels would be singing if you were to make that turn. Do you realize how much God loves you? How good He is? Do you know what full restoration is? Wouldn't it be great to know when you leave these doors that the slate is clean with God? You think you could experience this spiritually? All your sin, everything, all of it, buried in the depths of the sea and remembered no more against you. Somebody in the pew saying, God can't be that good. Grace can't be that great. Mercy can't go that far. God can't bury all my sin in the depths of the sea and remember it no more against me. Not only can He, He will. Your feet wouldn't even touch the floor. If you were to receive today the forgiveness of God offered to you in Jesus Christ and know, know, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all your sin is gone. It'd be a place spiritually where you've never been. And you'd never forget the moment you knew in your heart that God forgave you. And all that beating up yourself and all that dragging around that guilt suddenly cut off your shoulders and sent down into the depths of the ocean, removed as far as the east is from the west, gone Gone. Gone. That's what adoption means. My son is found and fully restored. You want to be there? Young person, you want to be there? All the sin gone? You want to be there? Nothing keeps you from from full restoration in the Father's family except your willingness to cry out like Leah did. If you are willing to say, Lord, here I am, 
And I know I'm a sinner. I want you in my life. Please forgive me for my sin. I believe Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. And I want to know today the freedom from that guilt. That's what he bought for you at Calvary. You claim it for yourself today through faith in Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, I pray that you would move us from misery to praise in this time of worship, in your very holy presence. Call us to yourself and make us all your own. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, will you, with your head bowed and eyes closed, pray in your heart, Acknowledging your sin. Ask God to forgive you. Confess that you believe in Jesus who died and rose again. Receive him as Lord and Savior as best you know how. Father, I pray for men and women, young people and boys and girls in this room, whose most desperate need is to be adopted into your family through grace. Let it happen today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.